please be seated. As you take your seat, you can turn in your copy of the Word of God to Psalm 3, the third Psalm. Psalm 3. We're going to take a look at a significant moment in King David's life as David penned this Psalm and many others. This is the first Psalm to bear a title says at the top in the acrostic, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. It's one of the darkest times in David's life, one of the most difficult times. He was on the run from Absalom, and you can read all about it in 2 Samuel chapter 15. The title brings a reminder of the king's personal grief, having his own son turn on him. And really lead a coup. Absalom didn't simply want to take over David's kingdom. He wanted to kill David, his own father. <clears throat> there was a rising tide of disloyalty through these chapters, 2 Samuel 15 and 16. I read this psalm and I see three things. Number one, David's trial, verses 1 and 2. David's trial. Secondly, David's transformation in verses 3 through 5. And then finally, David's triumph in verses 6 through 8. This passage reminds us that we all go through trials for various reasons. The Christian life is not free from hardship and difficulty. And we suffer sometimes and go through trials for a number of different reasons, according to the book of James. But in these trials, regardless of the reason why they come, they often bring transformation in our lives. In other words, God is molding us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, we get a new perspective. We have a sense of not being defeated, but triumphant as we emerge from these difficulties stronger in the strength of our Lord. So join me in prayer now as we walk through this very brief psalm and these uh, momentous occasions in the life of King David. And hopefully we can learn, because every one of us goes through trials and difficulties, and every one of us is being transformed into the image of Christ. And every one of us has reasons to say that we triumph in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus in him only. We pray through these moments that you would visit us by your spirit, that you would bring your word to life in every one of us, and that you would accomplish all the purposes for which you send it. Bless us now, Lord, as we study together. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, you'll notice David's trial in this summary statement in verses 1 and 2. And I want you to notice two things in particular. Number one, there are increasing adversaries. Look at verse 1. David called out to the Lord in one of the greatest trials of his life, the rebellion and coup of his own son Absalom. Oh, Lord, my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Not only was Absalom there, but he gained the hearts of the people. 
you remember the story, he stood at the gate in place of his father, and he began to issue judgments that his father should have given. And he was very partial to the Israelites in their favor. And so slowly but surely, the people's hearts began to turn away from David to Absalom as he carried out this subversive coup. The conspiracy drew stronger and stronger, and the people with Absalom kept increasing, 2 Samuel 15, 12 says. And they're rising up against David. He's outnumbered. And David found himself as a part of the minority that seemed to be shrinking. Many are my foes. The word many is repeated three times in verses 1 and 2. And it represents the growing opposition against David. That he was that led by Absalom and involved many enemies who were loyal to Absalom. Ironically, what began as a secret covert rebellion against David's son Absalom or by David's son Absalom, escalated into a full-blown public revolt, and many of Israel's citizens were included. You know, the irony here is that this was a time of international peace. David had rest from all of his enemies. But his sin with Bathsheba brought about hardship and trial and difficulty. And so the greatest danger did not come from without, from an enemy, or another army, it came from within, his own son, who turned against him. Not only are there increasing adversaries, but notice there are rumors of divine rejection. Look at verse 2, very painful. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. With his adversaries increasing and conspiring against him and his kingdom, We learn that many are speculating with rumors that God has rejected and forsaken him. I mean, who could forget whenever David left his palace as he was a fugitive from Absalom? You remember the guy Shimei, who came down on top of a hill and started cursing David? He says in 2 Samuel 16, The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you. You are a man of blood. It's really tragic when somebody who's a spectator on the outside starts to say what God is or is not doing in your life. They don't know. They don't know. It's even sadder when we start to believe the reports of those who circulate thoughts like that. You know, when you're surrounded by people who say, the Lord has left you, the Lord has abandoned you, after a while, it starts to sink in and you start to entertain the idea. Maybe he has. I have a friend who's been suffering for a long time, great difficulty. And there are questions running through this person's mind all the time. What did I do? Why is God doing this to me? Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. You'll never know all the reasons why God allows trials your way. And we are not to sit and try to understand all the reasons why God allows it. Because regardless of why the trials come, the objective of the Lord is the same. To conform you and me into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. 
And so whenever we sin and difficulty comes, God is disciplining us and moving us in the right direction to become more like Jesus. And even when we don't sin, as Job maintains, why did all this happen to me? The Lord was giving Job a bigger understanding, a bigger picture of who he was. So it doesn't matter why the trial comes. What's important is to remember that all of us are being conformed into the image of Jesus. And every child who doesn't receive that kind of discipline, that positive and even negative discipline at times, is an illegitimate child. Rumors are surrounding David. You know, the Bible makes it clear throughout Scripture that the righteous are not exempt from problems and trials and difficulties. It's just a fact. The Old Testament saint Job had many afflictions. In Job 5, verses 6 and 7, he said, Affliction does not come from the dust, nor does it trouble sprout from the ground. For man is born for trouble, as surely as the sparks fly upward. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to severe afflictions. We learned that in our 2 Corinthians 1 reading. He says, We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. You say, Well, I wish I could be like the Apostle Paul. I wish I could be so godly as him. I wish I could handle all my afflictions the way he does. This is real life. Paul said, We despaired even of life. But he goes on to talk about his strength in the Lord Jesus and how Christ got him through. And we'll look at that a little bit more in a minute. So why was all this happening to David? Well, we know from the record of his life that God was disciplining him as a father disciplines his son. And I say again, we all experience that. Nevertheless, we must not give in to evil thoughts that God has somehow abandoned us or forsaken us. You see David's first words in Psalm, or verse 1, O Lord, make it abundantly clear that David's relationship with God is sustained despite God's chastening hand. In fact, David is doing exactly what every believer should do whenever life falls apart, whenever we face adverse people or circumstances, regardless of the reasons for those circumstances. We need to cry out to the Lord. We must not speculate on why exactly God is allowing this adversity. The material point is, how will we respond? And how will the Lord use whatever has come our way for his glory and our growth in Jesus? That's his objective. David cried out to God, and we must do the same. Well, that is David's trial, or a summary of it. Now, I want you to notice in verses 3 through 5, a transformation that takes place in this man as a result of being before the Lord. You know, we always say the Reformed Church is always reforming. Well, we could say that about the individual Christian. The individual Christian is always reforming. I like to use the word transforming because it fits better in my sermon outline. So. <laughs> the individual Christian is always transforming. He's being, or she's being transformed into the image of Christ. And notice what happens here. There are four things I want to point to. Number one, the Lord is the foundation of my existence. Look at verse 3. It is so rich. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. 
the first thing David did on the verge of losing his entire kingdom, he reminds himself that the Lord is his shield. We think of a shield, we think of a mighty army. We think of military might and many victories in battle. You know, David, the significance of this is David didn't have a shield when he fought Goliath. The Lord was his shield. All he had was a few stones and a sling. But now David is in need. Even though he fought the mighty Goliath without a shield, I believe he's looking back now and realizing it is the Lord who is my shield. A shield around me at all times, just like he was when I fought that awful Philistine giant Goliath. The Lord is a shield about me, and I will trust in him. Then he says, my glory. You know, David once enjoyed the praise and the admiration of the people. His kingdom was glorious and successful. But all of that glory of David and his kingdom was a result of the gift and the kindness of God. David's glory was in the dust now. And what this led to him to do is look back to his point of origin. That the purpose of his life was to glorify God, not himself. I love the words of that wonderful George Matheson hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. One of the lines says, I lay in dust life's glory dead. And from the ground there blossoms red life that shall endless be. You see, David had to lose his kingdom and his glory in order to see and re-see God's glory. And that's one of the reasons why it came about. So many people go through life trying to establish their own glory. I think that's the problem in a lot of marriages. We get selfish. We want our rights. We want to be glorified instead of remembering that our purpose is to glorify the Lord by our union together as husband and wife. Therefore, loving one another and being sensitive with one another and not sinning against each other. David says, you're a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. See, David's sin with Bathsheba brought disgrace to David's life and kingdom. Nevertheless, God showed his mercy and kindness by forgiving David's sin. And the picture here of lifting our head is the fact that the Lord doesn't leave us to waller in regret, to waller in guilt, to waller in misery over the past. I know some people that are prisoners of past sins. And while they know all day long that the Lord has forgiven me, they do not live with that sense that God has lifted their heads. They walk around with their heads staring to the ground, as it were. And there is shame and disgrace, almost like they can't forgive themselves. No, David knew that he sinned, but he also knew of the grace of God. And God's grace lifted his head. And he lifts our heads, too, whenever we come clean before him and confess. You see what David is doing in verse 3? He's going back to the original point of his life. He's saying the Lord is the foundation for my existence. And I've got to revisit these things. That he is a shield around me. That he is my glory. And there's no glory aside from him. And promoting his glory. And he's the one who lifts my head. 
Now, from that point, secondly, we see that the Lord hears and answers my prayers. Look at verse 4. I was crying out to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. This king looked to a greater king, heaven's sovereign king, and called upon him. And with a decisive, resolute faith, he committed himself to the Lord, testifying, He answers me from his holy mountain, or holy hill, some of the translations have. This refers to the place of the Lord's sanctuary, Mount Zion, the temple mount in Jerusalem where David had brought the ark that represented the presence and the power of God in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And ultimately it refers to the heavenly throne room where God sits enthroned, presiding over David's troubles. See the beauty of this, ladies and gentlemen, and don't miss it. David's confidence that God answers his prayers that God hears his prayers and answers his prayers is not in the outcome of those prayers. Often we pray for things and then we wait and watch and we lose sight of the fact that God knows best and sometimes he says yes and sometimes no and sometimes wait a while. And the only way you'll ever accept any of that with grace is to see with your mind's eye God enthroned in heaven. Your perspective of who God is and where he's at makes all the difference in the world. And that's where the confidence comes that my God, who I am close to, who I have an intimate relationship with, hears every prayer I offer, and he answers those prayers in his good timing and his good way. Whatever that looks like, I can trust him because he is enthroned in the heavens. It is David's perspective which gives the confidence that God hears and God answers every prayer we offer. Thirdly, the Lord gives me peace and rest. Look at verse 5. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. It was hard for David to sleep on the run. He lost his castle. He lost his glory, his palace. His son was after him. Could have ambushed him at any time. But because David had committed his soul and his desperate situation to the Lord, David was at peace. And he could say these words, I lay down and sleep. I awake again because the Lord sustains me, knowing that God was always awake to protect him. David slept the sleep of peace, able to awake refreshed. Left to his own strength, David would have tossed and turned through sleepless nights agitated over his trouble and his circumstances. But because the Lord was his shield, quiet sleep was possible. You ever spend nights tossing and turning? You ever feel anxious about a particular issue, about a particular problem? Then you can relate to David. And there are other examples of this. I think of uh, Simon Peter, who was so unstable, so fickle early on in the ministry. And then later on, after the resurrection and the pouring out of the Spirit, you remember at one point he was in prison and probably going to be executed, and he fell asleep. (laughs) And the people of God were praying for him to be released, and they had to go to the prison, and an angel had to kick him in the side to wake him up. Now that's peace, my friend. Whenever you're facing a death sentence and you're on death row, and yet you know the Lord has everything under control. 
Bible has a lot to say about peace. Isaiah 26, 3, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. John 16, 33, Jesus himself said, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Jesus said, in me you have peace. Cannot be divorced from the Lord Jesus himself. Colossians 3.15, Paul says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And who could forget Philippians 4, 6, and 7? Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The Lord gives peace and rest to those who trust in him, just like he gives forgiveness and restoration, just like he lifts our heads. We ought to lift the heads of one another and say there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, David's testimony is the Lord is the foundation of my life and existence. Secondly, the Lord hears and answers my prayers. Thirdly, the Lord gives me peace and rest. And then finally, the Lord gives me courage to move forward. Look at David's triumph finally. Look at David's triumph in verses 6 through 8. Here we have a man who has been suffering a terrible trial, the coup of his own son, here we have transformation. And then finally, we have a triumph. Look at David, how he emerges triumphant from his trials as a result of his communion and interaction with God. Look at verse 6. There is a withdrawal of fear and a flood of courage. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. What in the world brought this great, great sense of courage? And what brought about this absence of fear? It's simple. David was transformed by time with the Lord. Because of a great multitude had followed Absalom in his revolt, David was extremely outnumbered. Nevertheless, he did not fear anymore because he was fortified by the truth that God was his all-sufficient protector. God is my glory. God is my shield. It's almost as if heaven is being opened up and David is seeing with the eyes of his heart the realities, the spiritual realities of who God is and what he is doing in his life. I have to go back to 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4. You know, Paul said not only that we were burdened beyond the desire to continue living. But he also said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we are able to comfort others in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Whenever the Lord withdraws fear, he gives courage. And when you have courage, you not only are restored in your own soul, but you're able to help others get back on their feet. You're able to help others find their way.
And look at this confident expectation of the Lord's deliverance. Look at verse 7a. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Look at all this confidence spewing out and a sense that the Lord will deliver. Now, it's important. Don't miss this. It's important to notice the past tense of verses 7b and 8. It reveals the fact that while his outward circumstances have not changed, his perspective of God has grown and increased immensely. Look at the verse 7b. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord and your blessing is upon your people. What's going on here? The Lord didn't just show up in David's life. The Lord doesn't just show up in your life. He's always with you. We're talking about the living God of the Bible who has no end and no beginning. No, this is the eternal God of David's salvation. He is the covenant-keeping God who acts with absolute faithfulness. And all this points to the phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord. In other words, in David's mind, because he's taken the time to sit before the Lord, to re-understand who he is before the God of Jacob and Isaac and Israel. Now he knows what's going on. My God has already accomplished salvation. It's what we read by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1. He has delivered, he will deliver, and he will yet deliver us. It's three-dimensional. And so David is saying, it's always been done. That this God of salvation of mine, I can look down the corridors of time, and I can recognize with other writers of Scripture that he has known me before the foundation of the world. He has chosen me unto salvation, and he who began a good work in me will continue to perform it. As we say in Christ Jesus, he has delivered, he will deliver, and he will yet deliver. What's going on in your life? You know, if you haven't suffered a deep, deep trial with a family member, a friend, if you haven't been let down by life, you will be. You will be. There will come a time when something like that will happen. And when it does, the grace and the mercy of our Lord needs to be there in your life. And psalms like this prepare us. And they give us an understanding that regardless of what we're going through, because of communion with our Lord, we can look above all of it. And we can say with confidence, the Lord is my salvation. That's what the Lord Jesus did in John 14. He told his disciples in the previous chapter, chapter 13, I've got to go away. I'm going to be put to death on the cross And I'm going to rise from the dead. In the beginning of chapter 14, he said, Let not your hearts be troubled. He knew the disciples were upset. He knew they were discouraged because he was leaving. But he went on to say, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. You believe also in me. And he outlined what he was going to do. My father's house has many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I do that, I'm certainly going to come back and get you. In other words, I have delivered, I will deliver, and I will yet deliver you. It's all done in the past tense so that you can live in the presence, in the present with great confidence, great joy. Do you know the Lord Jesus? 
The God of David came and said, I will take care of you. I will shield you. I am your glory. I am your everything. And he made that known whenever Jesus Christ came. As the Apostle John said, we saw his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father. May the Lord Jesus Christ give you comfort today, whatever you're going through. And if you're doing well, may he prepare you for whatever comes your way. May the Lord give us grace to rest and trust in him and enhance that communion with him every day so that we more and more see his glory and our need for him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this psalm. A psalm with a difficult beginning, with heartache and pain, but a psalm that ends triumphant as a result of a relationship with you. Lord, thank you for the Lord Jesus, that we can know the God of sacred scripture, the God who made heaven and earth, because you, O God, have made yourself known to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And through him, you have made atonement for all of our sins, that we might have eternal life. Lord, help us to be like David, to see your glory, your majesty, your protection, your shield all around us. Help us to enjoy your peace. And Lord, lift up heads. Pray for those today that walk in guilt and shame of the past. May you lift up their heads, give them grace and mercy to move forward in courage. Lord, for all of us, help us to pursue you with all of our might this week. We'll give you the praise and glory for all that you continue to do in our lives as you save us in this life. We make our prayer in Jesus' name.